This episode is brought to you by Awesome CX by Transcom. Awesome CX provides high-touch, personalized customer experience services to consumer brands of any size. Stay tuned for a special offer for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. It's Lee Green, and welcome back to the Stairway to CEO podcast. It's my mission to bring you real, honest, and unfiltered interviews with some of the most innovative founders and CEOs from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Lee Green, and welcome back to the show. This is episode 191, and today I sat down with Nathan Condemuri, the co-founder and CEO of Pair Eyewear. Pair Eyewear is the first customizable eyewear brand on a mission to completely revolutionize the eyewear industry with glasses and sunglasses that can be an extension of your personality, mood, and interests. Nathan talks with us about what it's like growing up with parents who worked as doctors, how his little brother inspired him to create Pair, how he scaled his customer experience team to over 100 members, and the challenges he's faced in building on-demand production. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and thanks so much for listening. Hi, Nathan. Thank you so much for joining me on the show today. I'm really excited to hear your story in building Pair Eyewear. I've heard so much about it. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Lee. Excited to be here and chat all about our story here at Pair and, and growth and everything in between. Well, and your personal story. I want to know all the psychology behind how and why you are the way you are. Definitely. <laughs> Starting Happy with to dive into... All right, let's dive yeah. in. Where are you from originally? Talk to us about you know family dynamics, what you wanted to be when you grew up. Like, What kind of kid were you? Absolutely, Lee. So I grew up in a bit of a funky spot in Northwest Indiana called Munster, a small town. We were a bit of a suburb of Chicago. We were about 45 minutes from the city. And I have two siblings. My parents were doctors, are still doctors. And so we grew up in a household of just always hearing fun doctor stories and what are uh, those? Parents were helping people. <laughs> what <laughs> yeah, are fun doctor fun. stories? What kind of doctors <laughs> are they? I guess sort of crazy doctor stories, like back pain, rehabilitation. And so they were always constantly helping people and just making things better for people as, as doctors do. And we got to learn a lot about their work ethic into becoming doctors and how important it was and just how they spent their life dedicated to helping people. I'm so fascinated by really this like funny doctor here. story thing. I mean, really, because I'm like, what do you say at the dinner table with the family when you're both your parents or doctors are like, so this one time in surgery, this guy woke up and out of, out of his anesthesia. I mean, like, what, is, what would I say? Literally, exactly, exactly that. My dad would be in surgery talking about some crazy scenario of, yeah, patient waking up or oh you know, patient had this unfortunate, terrible complication, but they help fix it and just all sorts of crazy different things. Wow. Crazy photos. But always made for great. You don't need to watch TV when you have parents that are doctors. They just like come home with like the most dramatic stories. Exactly. I didn't need all the the doctor TV shows and soap operas. I had it all at home. 
That's crazy. So did you want to be a doctor when you grew up? I thought a lot about it for a while. I was considering going into medicine, but I just always loved building things. And so I, I landed at mechanical engineering to fast forward, but I just always loved building things, designing things. I was a big Lego kid, mm. loved Legos and, and building with those. I did a lot of science research as a kid. So very sort of similar skills that tie into starting a company, a lot of testing and iterating, running experiments, those experiments failing, and then trying yeah. new things to see what might work. So I was big into energy research as a kid. And that all led me to eventually studying mechanical engineering in school. So I didn't end up going the medicine route, much to my parents' dismay, though they did get one of my brothers, who's a doctor now, so kept the trend going. But yeah, I decided not to, because I always love building things. And then luckily and thankfully landed in the pair journey right after college. So wait, so I want to keep kind of harping on the, the childhood for a little more you say that you liked building things, but I don't think a lot of people translate a love for Legos to being a founder, right? That might be more like you might be an architect or you might want to build buildings, right? That could be maybe a more direct correlation. So when you look back, what kind of examples do you see of entrepreneurship or creative problem solving or leadership? That's a great question, Lee. So I think a lot of that definitely came from my parents. So my dad, as doctors, you're sort of forced to, in some way, shape or form, become an entrepreneur, especially if you move into private practice with my parents. My dad sort of built his own practice in the community and had a team of nurses and folks working. Which to is basically so make crazy, run. by the way. Like, yeah. how are you a doctor and running a business is so crazy to me. I don't know how they do it. It's exactly. Amazing. There's a lot of really nuanced skill sets to be able to do both. You're obviously practicing medicine, and then you're also leading a team to just make the experience for patients the best it can be and, and grow the business and all sorts of different things. So got to see a lot of that firsthand going to holiday parties that my parents would have for their practice, watching the way they solve problems if something was going wrong in the business or something team members left or different things would happen. So there was a lot of problem solving that came up there. And I would hear my dad talk about how to just help more patients wanting to expand the business into a surgery center in various places and just having visions or dreams for what the business or the practice could become was really always something we grew up around. And I think that probably did help lead to this feeling inside of me around wanting to build something or having the belief that I could have a vision and make it into a reality. I think there was a lot of that growing up and seeing that happen, seeing that come to fruition uh, in my parents. Yeah. And even in small things like Legos, you know, you have this dream to build a castle on yeah. the Legos and you do it and it happens and it, it works. So, so I think there's a lot of that. Sounds like you are a serious Lego builder. Like I'm thinking about my two and a half year old who plays with Legos and I think that you are in a different caliber. <laughs> building Legos. I think maybe you stuck with it a lot longer. But I love yeah. this whole creating visions into reality. Do you think pair eyewear was the first vision that you turned into reality? Or is there an earlier memory that you have of having a vision for something that you turn into reality? Yeah, I would say the science research I conducted in high school was probably the first version of having this dream or idea and turning it into a reality through a lot of testing, iterating, learnings, failures, and then eventually some wins, where in 
my freshman year of high school, I just got really enthralled and excited about solar energy and how solar energy was sort of the future of how to provide energy all across the world and how there was a, it was really early days on making that feasible across markets, making it cost effective, making it high energy efficiency. And I found this professor at Purdue University, which was like two hours south of where we lived in Indiana, that I reached out to and said, hey, I've got these ideas around building a better solar cell technology based off of plants and how they use metamorphosis to turn light into energy for themselves. And he's like, how old are you? Yeah, I'm just I'm just a 14 year old. Can you help me (laughs) figure this out? And can I work with you on, on doing this? And this professor, Dr. Gedney, was an amazing mentor that helped me understand what science research and experimentation looked like, how to essentially conduct experiments, see if they work, test and iterate, and then find solutions and really learn from both the research papers that were out before us and the research that existed prior to our idea, and then also test and iterate to find a solution. So fast forward, we did a lot of research on that solar cell technology and idea based off of metamorphosis from plants and created this solar cell technology that worked, that was able to use essentially green algae to turn light into energy and built solar cells based off of that idea that worked and were very efficient. And that was probably the first time I went from full idea to solution and it worked and there was a lot of learnings along the way. What happened to that company, your potential company that could have been (laughs) big? Where'd it go? So that was never thought of as a company. That was purely just science research. I got to show it off at a bunch of cool science fairs internationally. Was fortunate enough, actually, probably the most fun and cool experience I had was getting to go to the White House Science Fair and showing off the solar cell research to President Obama back when he was doing those at the White House yearly. And so it was a really cool experience being able to both understand and do the research but never took the technology or the idea further, it would have needed a ton more of actual research Mm. and development to make it manufacturable, make it sustainable and long lasting. But the idea, the concept was there, but never really took it further. But you got to meet Obama, right? Did you meet him? That was, yeah, yeah. That was a ton of fun and a really, really great experience. There's a reward, you know, (laughs) after all these visions making reality, (laughs) there's a reward. Definitely. That's awesome. So you did this science fair thing. Sounds like you're in high school. What did you do after high school? What were some of the first jobs that you had? Yeah, good question. So at Stanford in undergrad is where I started to get more interested in mechanical engineering, sort of going on that thread of building things and designing things. I thought mechanical engineering would offer a really good set of classes, resources to really hone that problem solving and work to build things. So studying mechanical engineering. And then my first job after my freshman year was in the summer, I had an internship at Sunrun. So again, continuing the solar energy trend, got to work there and really see for the first time what a startup was. And at that point, I think there were high growth startup, had at least hundreds of people. But coming from Indiana, I did not know what a startup was. I did not know that startups existed. I did not know that companies could take an idea and turn it into a business that could be a really large company. And so I think just going to Stanford alone, 
opened my eyes to this whole Silicon Valley startup scene mm-hmm. and ecosystem that I had no idea about. And then having that first summer working in the sort of software engineering and product space at Sunrun was eye-opening to me to also understand how they take ideas to reality by sort of having a bunch of teams collaborate on taking that idea and turning it into reality. So that was my first foray into the startup world. Did that ignite something in you to say, oh, I want to be like that, or I'm like that, or I want to do stuff like this? I think subconsciously it did. I never, after that summer, thought, oh, I'm going to start a company or I'm going to be an entrepreneur. But I think subconsciously, I realized I liked that environment. I liked that fast-paced culture of being able to test and iterate, break things, create things and bring it into the world. And I think that that environment definitely energized me. But I didn't know at that point, oh, I want to start a company. And frankly, I didn't really know that until Pear came about and one thing led to another. Isn't it just crazy looking back that, and maybe it's probably still true, that you only really believe what's possible because you've seen it somewhere. So if you don't exactly. see it, you don't even know it's possible. You don't even know about it. How restricting is that? Like, that's so scary to think about how much we don't know is actually possible. It is pretty crazy. And I, I truly feel so fortunate to have had both the experiences I had in my childhood, but then also having the opportunity to go to Stanford and be yeah. open to that world and that ecosystem of startups, which I feel, yeah, very fortunate to have had the experience of. Absolutely. So you had your kind of first foray into the startup world, maybe it ignited something small and, and you know, set you on a path. But what did you do after that? I know you worked at GE. That was another internship, it looks like. And then where did you go from there? Yeah, so I had a couple of varied experiences, sort of flipped the opposite way in the spectrum by going to GE and had a really interesting internship there where I worked in their energy turbine department, working both on the mechanical engineering side, but also on the business side. So understanding the costs of goods to manufacture something, the whole supply chain to actually make it happen. And skills, honestly, you know, I hadn't thought about till now that really translate well to a lot of the work we did early on at Pair, but a completely different experience in terms of the size of the business and the way the business ran being, you know, a huge, large corporation, public company, been around for 50 plus years versus Sunrun, which was a much younger startup. And then after GE, I had an internship at Bain and Company and Consulting, which was also a very different experience to the previous two, but got to learn and see how one should evaluate a business or think about how to make changes to business model to make it a better business for consumers, for the business itself. And that was also a really helpful time to understand and look at a business in very different ways, look at it financially. So I guess those three experiences really helped sort of formulate and craft a view into how to think about starting, building, and growing a business from all different lenses of people, culture, financial, business model, product, supply chain. So it it was a bit of a quick primer on all the different aspects of growing a business. So it was a great time. What did you think of your experience at Bain? I, I have so many entrepreneurs on the show that are like, it was not for me. It was the worst job I ever had. <laughs> like they have very strong <laughs> feelings about it. And then there's some yeah. people that were like, you know, they enjoyed it. They did it for a long time. Yeah, it's interesting. So I only ended up having that 
one summer internship at Bain. And I don't think it was for me, but I also really enjoyed the experience that it gave me and that it gave me a very different way of looking at a business. And I'm sure if I did end up spending time there, which was actually my plan, I'd signed to go back full time, but then pair happened and I deferred and never, never oh, went wow. back. So I was, I was absolutely ready to, but got to learn a lot about just how a business runs and how mm-hmm. really experienced people sort of view and understand a business model and then provide recommendations of how to make things better at the business, which was a really unique way of sort of zooming out and looking at a business, which I think was helpful. And then I think the people there were also really a great community. So that was one of my favorite parts of that summer internship is that I made some lifelong friends that still to this day are some really good friends. And they they continued on at Bain, many of them. So I know, I think you came up with the idea in your dorm. So talk to us about the story of how you came up with Pear. Absolutely. So I started Pear with one of my closest friends from Stanford undergrad, Sophia Edelstein. She and I were best friends sort of starting our second week of school at Stanford because we were in dorms right next to each other. And the idea for Pear came about our senior year when we were just casually having a conversation about glasses and eyewear. And the idea really started at my experience of wearing glasses my entire life. I had worn glasses since I was seven or eight years old. And it had always been an unexciting experience compared to every other consumer product in my life. You know, everything like my shoes, my clothes, jewelry, those were all dynamic and extension of my personality. And and I, I was excited about them as a consumer, but glasses had always just felt like this very static medical device. Mm. And that senior year conversation was top of mind because my little brother was getting glasses for the first time and he was absolutely not stoked about it. But Aww. he was the biggest fan of his sneakers and he loved Nike and he had all this excitement you know, about other things, but just was not excited about glasses. And so we got to thinking, why had nobody ever tried to recreate and fully redefine and redesign the glasses experience for consumers to be more personalized, be more joyful and dynamic, just as people are. And that's what really kicked off the whole idea of our first personalized product, which Pear has that allows people to change up the color and design of their glasses, turn glasses into sunglasses, all really easily and simply with our our patented product. But it all came from that initial discovery that people didn't really enjoy their glass experience. And the eyewear industry and that experience was pretty broken, pretty just fully medical feeling and had some opportunity to make more joyful. It's so true, right? I mean, or you just need to have like 20 pairs of cool different glasses. I mean, what a great idea that, to think. Yeah. And, and that that can be so cost prohibitive, right? To have oh, yeah. 20 different pairs of glasses. Glasses are extremely expensive today, like average $300 sometimes with prescription lenses in the market. And so there was this, just from a value perspective, easy way to be able to allow consumers to almost have essentially multiple pairs of glasses all for the price of a single pair through our product mechanism. That's great. And so you guys kind of came up with this idea together, which is 
also risky to just start a company with your friend, right? Like you kind of just met, yeah. you're not really, maybe <laughs> you didn't really think about like complementary skill sets yet, you know, who knows? Did you think about those <laughs> things early on when, before you got into business together, were you thinking like how to divide and conquer and like complementary skill sets? Or did you just say, Hey, we trust each other. We have this idea. Let's do it. Yeah, it was more the the latter. We we just knew we liked each other. We were really good friends and had been friends for four years. We had this idea and we were excited to sort of put our everything into that idea. And even when we started senior year with that idea, moved to sort of product concept and something we tested with people, we weren't even yet thinking about Pair or the concept as a business. We were just working on it because we were excited about it and thought it was really interesting. But it wasn't until later on in senior year that we landed on the fact that, oh, this could be a really interesting business concept and more than just a product idea. It could actually be a business that has serious legs to really transform the eye care industry beyond what it is today. And when did you realize that? Did you do surveys or how did you validate this concept? Yeah, we had this moment. So to begin, we we started to essentially listen to customers and listen to people, both kids, parents, and understand what did they think of their glasses experience? Where did they find that it was broken? And we kept hearing a lot of similar patterns and trends in that people were really unhappy with that experience. They thought glasses were extremely expensive, you know, $300 on average, they thought the product itself was lacking that dynamic element that they had from every other product in their life. Like we all change our clothes on a daily basis. We have so many accessories, but glasses, which is the most prominent accessory and item on our face, while it is a medical device at its core, there was no way to make it fun and joyful for consumers. And people kept saying, oh, I wish I could you know, wear a red pair one day and then a blue pair the next and match my favorite sports teams like the Golden State Warriors as we're in the Bay Area. And that's what made the idea of customizable glasses really click in our mind in saying, oh, people want to be able to switch up the color, the design to match their interests, match, you know, what they're doing for the day. And that's what led us to essentially start to iterate on that product concept idea of let's create a solution that enables that behavior in consumers, that allows them to change the color and design. And we started to design and build different product mechanisms that would accomplish that and then landed on our current solution, which is our patented magnetic mechanism, which allows people to just easily swap on and off through a magnetic mechanism, our top frames, changing the color, turning glasses into prescription polarized sunglasses with our sun tops. So really allowed the consumer behavior of glasses to transform into something that it had never been, something that was personalized, dynamic, individualized to the person. So how did you get this company off the ground? Now you've kind of validated the idea, okay, seems like this is definitely something customers want. What were some of the first steps that you took to get this product to make it a reality? The first step we took was we actually raised some early angel capital in the Bay Area at the end of our senior year. It was about 150K to really help us get the concept off the ground, manufacture real glasses, go to market with that product in a beta to consumers to see, get early feedback on the product, understand what they liked, what they didn't like, iterate, 
And that really got us going. We both actually deferred our full-time jobs right after graduating in 2017 and spent a year really working on the product and iterating based off of customer feedback. And then eventually launched to market in 2019 and then have been scaling since. That's awesome. And so what's like some of the things that you guys did as you kind of organically grew in terms of like distribution strategy or, you know, something that was unique that helped propel a lot of this growth? Yeah, great question, Lee. So early on, we were essentially learning as we were growing. So the both of us were first-time founders and we thought it was really important. And this is a you know, piece of advice I'd give any founders to surround yourself with people that are absolute experts at their craft, at their area of expertise. And so we brought on early on this team member who now leads marketing at Pair that was really able to help us understand how would we go to market? What would our distribution strategies be? And how would we find consumers that were really excited about the Pair concept? And some key moments in that growth story were in 2020, when Sophia and I aired on Shark Tank, which was a huge moment for the business. We got a ton of press for Pair and and that got us a lot of brand awareness and that really kicked off our momentum into 2020 and 2021 where we 10X the business from 2020 to 2021. We also initially launched the business specifically for children. That's where we recognized, you know, the biggest need is that children want to be able to change up the colors. They wanted to enjoy their glasses experience versus being really scared about it. And we quickly started to hear a ton of interest from adults in 2020 wanting to wear a pair as well, wanting to be able to personalize their eyewear. And when we launched our first adult collection, we started to really blow up and scale really rapidly because now there was this whole broader segment of consumers that we were able to serve. And that really helped propel the business as well. When you say adults, I'm confused because weren't you... When did you launch with adult size frames before? So we actually didn't. We launched the business just as a children's focused brand because we wanted it to be a beachhead market. We recognized the problem in children and um... wanted to really test, iterate, and see how they engage with the product. And children loved it. And what we quickly realized is that adults actually love it too. Right. And we quickly, you know, not pivoted, but expanded our, our mission and vision for the business to be able to personalize the eyewear experience, not just for children, but for really all, all people. So it really was kind of launching this for your younger brother. Is that accurate? Exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. We were essentially, you know, trying to build a solution for kids like my little brother to just yeah. not be afraid of their glasses, not be daunted by the experience, but have it be something that they were excited about and sort of happen chance that it evolved to be so much more than that. And so I would say some other pivotal moments in our distribution and growth were when we essentially built a whole new design platform to allow people to bring their favorite brands to life in their eyewear. So we've now become the largest brand partner globally in the eyewear space, partnering with major entertainment studios like Marvel, sports leagues like the NBA and MLB, even artists like Van Gogh and Frida Kahlo. So really bringing all these amazing brands and artists to people's eyewear in a way that's just never been done before. And that was something that consumers really loved. And then we were also a real 
pioneer on the platform of TikTok, where we really grew heavily through the platform through an influencer-led strategy of people that just loved pair, people who loved wearing the glasses and then would post about it. And that strategy really came about from discovering customers posting on the platform and about how much they loved pair, swapping through different styles and designs, and has been a core part of our strategy since. So what do you mean? So how do you incentivize customers to leverage social media and then use that content? Or what kind of strategy are you referring to? So at the beginning, it was completely organic. So we did not do anything on TikTok. We had customers that were posting about their pair on TikTok, showing themselves swapping through different styles and designs. And those videos were going viral, getting millions of views overnight by chance. And a friend had texted Sophia and I saying, hey, have you seen that video that went viral on TikTok? I think both of us didn't even have TikTok as a platform on our, on our phones yet. We got it. We saw the video and we're like, oh my goodness, this is insanely blowing up and driving a ton of traffic to the website. How can we build a strategy around this? So then we started to build a strategy where we work with tons of different content creators, influencers all across the country and work with them to post content. And that has been a core part of driving growth for us as a business. And then we also you know, enable and empower customers to share on social media. But the strategy has gone even farther than that. That's awesome. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. Customer service and call centers are rarely topics that people get excited about. But Awesome CX is simply different. Their inclusive culture rooted in wellness and fun means that their teams are encouraged to be their best selves personally and professionally by providing them with everything from mental health and healthcare resources to career development. And regardless of the size of your business, Awesome CX is uniquely positioned to support you throughout your growth. They work with some of the fastest growing startups like FabFitFun, Carbon38, Lettuce Grow, Mudwater, and so many more. Want to see it to believe it? Just email me directly at lee, L-E-E, at stairwaytoceo.com to request to join one of their coffee chats where you can meet with their amazing team and witness the agent engagement yourself. You'll be so impressed. I can't wait for you to learn more about Awesome CX to make your brand's customer experience awesome. Thank you so much to our incredible sponsors for supporting the Stairway to CEO podcast. Now let's get back to the show. So we've heard a lot about the growth and the design platform. Sounds awesome. These brand partnerships, it's genius. It makes total sense. In terms of challenges, like on the other side of this with scaling, what challenges have you faced? Great question. And there's definitely a myriad of challenges that we faced along the way. And I'd say, you know, maybe two good examples of scaling challenges that are sort of part of growing pains. One was around that design platform itself. So we built our own on-demand production process that enables us to take any design and put it onto our top friends fully on demand. It's proprietary built in-house. And as we were building that out and then launching product to consumers, the demand just skyrocketed and we were instantly underwater with production. So it's definitely a dark moment in sort of the production history of Pair where we were completely underwater with orders. It was all hands on deck at our facility in Southern California, working to design and build our top frames as fast as we could to get orders out. People were shipping orders themselves. And it was just a major challenge of, and, and a classic one of growing pains where you don't necessarily have the systems or the manufacturing and supply chain set up to deliver against the consumer demand. 
that was one clear example that we, you know, obviously eventually solved through, but a clear example of how to essentially be prepared for that to happen and try to set yourself up for scaling success. And then I would say one other very similar example was on the customer experience side where we were probably one or two customer experience team members back in 2019. And as we started to grow extremely rapidly, we didn't really have an easily sustainable, scalable system for how we could grow that customer experience team to keep up with order demand, right? And that's people that are answering emails, phones, chats with customers reaching out to questions about the order, questions about how to order. And we found an amazing group in Awesome CX that was able to provide us a solution that would allow us to quickly train, stand up a team, and scale that team pretty rapidly to keep up with consumer demand as we started to build up our processes and build something that was sustainable. So Awesome CX was a group that essentially allows you to create internal teams that are actually outsourced that have great CX experience from other brands. And you essentially make that team your own and you you grow that team. So it's been a really great experience working with them because of how flexible they are with their solution. They really are so founder friendly. We're a huge fan here of Awesome CX. They've been supporting the show most of this year. We're so grateful for them. And a lot of founders I have on the show work with them. It's incredible their roster of brands and customers that they work with. Obviously, you guys and FabFitFun, Revolve. I mean, the list is so long. Mm-hmm. And I think it really is this flexible, like month to month service they offer, which they could easily do annual contracts, right? I feel like they would get customers still that way, but I think they understand this month to month need of having to scale up, scale down. There's holiday seasons, there's peak seasons. So you want to mm-hmm. be able to support the business and that growth during those times. So it's, yeah, one of the best solutions I've ever heard of for scaling customer service. It's cool that you have too. How did you discover Awesome CX? You know, I think it was exactly that. I think we knew some folks over at Fat Fun. Mm. And as we were reaching out to our network to say, hey, we have this huge issue and that we can't keep up with customer emails, customer chats, phone calls, who has a solution for us, we were pointed in the direction of Awesome CX. We opened a team of what was then just two people that then mm-hmm. has now quickly grown to over a hundred. So it's, wow, it's grown really rapidly. It's grown mm-hmm. really rapidly as the business has scaled over the past few years. And again, it's just been, like you said, a really flexible solution to allow us to scale up and down with the business needs. As we've gotten more efficient, right? We've been able to really automate and streamline that process, and the team is there to support when we need them. And not to mention, I think it's like the most affordable option possible. Like you can't yes, do it yourself for any less. Like it's not a let's do this in-house, it's cheaper thing. That does not fly. That's not how this one works. <laughs> Absolutely. It's extremely cost effective, yeah. which is what makes it again, you know, just a really scalable solution for a business as you know, any business needs to watch all different cost centers mm-hmm. for the scalable solution for CX not to become one of those major cost centers. I know. Yeah, I think one of the hesitations that maybe founders have in outsourcing something that could be as important, something as important as customer experience, right? Like it feels so delicate, maybe scary when you're doing it in house, you have those one or two reps in house. 
And then you're thinking about outsourcing. Outsourcing in general, that word has such a bad rap, you know? So when you were thinking about it and you were thinking about handing over the reins, essentially, I know you can have like as much or as little control as you want to be with them as partners. I'm curious, how are you weighing that option of having that control in-house and you know that founder mentality of having an in-house team means more benefits compared to outsourcing? How do you think about that? Yeah, it's a really good question. And the reason I don't even use the word outsourcing is because awesome makes it, you know, almost something different than that. Yeah, you really totally. do build out these sort of internal teams that aren't sitting within your home office, but are elsewhere, but are mm-hmm. essentially extensions of your team. And, and that's really how I thought about it. When I met the awesome CX folks, I got to go to their CX centers and understand the culture that they create, the way brands have been using them for years and have found really strong leverage out of their teams. But most importantly, understand that they really were an extension of your internal team. They were just sitting elsewhere and that we could have really strong communication and management of our internal team to the awesome team, but also that they had folks in their executive team that were working with each brand to ensure that teams were productive, they were as efficient as possible, we were working to train them and be higher quality. So I got to a point where I felt very comfortable, essentially leveraging this external, almost though internal team from Awesome to scale CX, because like you said, it's it's such a cost effective solution that's scalable that will be, and we've done tests on this, that will be just as productive, just as efficient and as high quality as internal teams. So we've yeah. we've honestly taken a very data-focused approach where we said, okay, a lot of companies will do fully in-house teams, but let's actually track and assess the differences in cost, the differences in productivity and, and quality, because ultimately, we're really just trying to provide the best and highest quality experience to our customers. And let's be really data-focused in how we assess that. And saying that they are, you know, the Awesome CX really is an extension of your internal team. And I think the reason why and what is so different is that actually the reps are full-time on your brand. They're not working with any other brand but yours. And that, I think, is a major, such a big difference. Because when you think about outsourcing in general or working with an agency like a marketing agency, they're working with a ton of other brands, right? Like you're one of many. Yeah. And you never feel like you have one person working on your brand all the time. And this is the total opposite with Awesome CX. It's always you know, all your reps are full-time, breathing, sleeping, and all those things about your brand, which I think makes all of the difference to make it feel even more like that extension of your in-house team. So anyway, so then you know you have this problem with scaling your customer service team. You, you were able to solve that. And then what kind of happened after that? You just raised a massive round, $75 million, Series C. Congratulations. I have a friend, Jed, over at Javelin. So I've heard about Pair Eyewear actually oh, awesome. for quite a while now. <laughs> Fantastic. We love Jed and, and the Javelin folks. They, they led us Series A and have continued yes. on as, as investors in each round, actually. So we, That's awesome. we love them. They've been great partners. Yes. Yes. Jed is very fond of you guys. Again, heard about you guys probably since the Series A. <laughs> yeah. And it's just incredible. So where do you see the business going now? Like, What's the future look like for Pair with all this awesome funding? $75 million. What are you going to do with it? It's an incredibly exciting time here at Pair. We've been really fortunate and excited to have just proven our business model as a 
more retention focus and better economic business model within the iOS space, but also simultaneously a better value proposition for consumers and a product and business model that's completely differentiated within the iCare space, right? There's nobody that's ever brought personalization to eyewear and the iCare experience in a way that Pair has. And that I think has been very proven now at this point over the past three, four years of our growth and has been really well received by investors for what the future of the business holds. And, and even internally, the way we as a team think about what the future holds. So our mission really and vision over the next five plus years is to become one of the largest global eye care companies in the world that's really focused on bringing personalization to the end-to-end eyewear and broader eye care experience. So the way in which you find, shop, and engage with your eyewear that we've started to really revolutionize and transform through our, our top frames, designs, brand partnerships, but also developing a front-end digital platform that's really personalized to users, recommending designs, offering the best fitting frames, offering a place for people to store prescriptions, and offering that one holistic experience for consumers digitally. And then creating the backend supply chain and manufacturing globally to deliver a really joyful eyewear and eye care experience to consumers around the world, no matter where they are in, in under a week. So we have really lofty, exciting plans and vision for the company. And we're excited. We're extremely well capitalized to execute on that vision over the next five to 10 plus years. So what's this automated lens lab thing? What's, what do you mean? What's that? Yeah, we've been really excited to make manufacturing a core competency and differentiator for Paris. So we've become one of the highest quality lens manufacturers in the world, probably at this point. And that's a testament to the amazing team members we've brought on that have helped us open our first manufacturing facility in Irvine, California, where we now make all the prescription lenses, fit those lenses and assemble all of our eyewear directly out of that facility in Southern California, all made in the US. We do all of our top frame manufacturing pretty much out of that facility. So it's been amazing to build that all in-house, drive better quality for the consumers, faster ship times to consumers, as well as higher margins for our business. So it's been a really great experience to learn that process, become experts in manufacturing, automate a ton of processes as part of that manufacturing process that have not historically been automated. So we've built one of the most automated lens labs here in the U.S. And now as we continue to scale for the long term, one of the core differentiators Pair is going to be able to build on a global scale is having manufacturing as a core differentiator, starting to place manufacturing nodes all across the globe to deliver that same fast eyewear experience to your door in under a week, no matter where they are. So as we start to expand into Europe, when the time is right, we'll place manufacturing there. And when we start to expand into Asia, same thing. So we'll start to have really globalized manufacturing and supply chain footprint that will enable us to really grow heavily and scale within the world domination, category. basically. <laughs> Something like it for sure. Oh my God. Really so manufacturing, what was it like telling your first couple investors when you were raising money for your first automated lens lab? You know, how hard was that? Yeah, I mean, it was really well received. And I think investors were quite excited by sort of taking the hard approach or the harder approach in mm -hmm. 
really vertically integrating our manufacturing. And the reason it was well-received is because it starts to build stronger assets and value for the business long-term, right? So as we think about scaling pair long-term, it really provides this new valuable asset and core differentiator for the business and that not many eye care companies around the world can say that they've vertically integrated their manufacturing and supply chain. Mm -hmm. So it is truly a core differentiator in the category. And so in that respect, people were really excited about us investing in that area and then were pleasantly surprised and pleased that we were able to create such an automated high margin lens lab that serves our customers well, really high quality, no hiccups in manufacturing and something that we now have the blueprint to essentially recreate and and do Mm -hmm. in other countries as the business expands globally. I mean, it's really brilliant. And the thing is, is there's so many brands and there's a lot of investors that like when you're starting out, they don't want you to think about it. They're like, no, 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 no. Do not get into the manufacturing business. Like focus on marketing, focus on building your brand all those things. So that's why I ask because I've had quite a few founders on the show and so many of them that have had to go down that path to be vertically integrated and manufacture everything in-house. It's such a huge undertaking. And a lot of times when they're pitching for the first time, hey, we want a lot of money so we can start doing this manufacturing in-house. They're like, "Mm, I don't know about that. So that's why I was curious what your feedback was from investors, because I've heard that initially there's quite a bit of pushback until, of course, you get the first manufacturing done. You're like, hey, look, we're able to scale now. This means we can make more money because we're able to produce more for less and blah, blah, blah. So just curious how that journey was for you. Yeah. And I think one of the benefits of eyewear manufacturing in specific is that it has a very fast and quick payback on CapEx. So obviously, for vertically integrating, you tend to have to invest in a lot of equipment, space, and you want to be doing it at the right time for the business, right? So we thought a lot about when is the right time to vertically integrate. And really, you want to do it at a time where volume and demand is growing at a rate that when you purchase all this equipment, when you get it into place and start manufacturing, your payback on that equipment investment should be 18 months, two years, ideally at a maximum. And that's where we were as a business. So we've you know, been able to recoup all that investment costs in the margin growth that we've seen as a business. And you definitely, as a founder, want to be thinking about that return on investment in a very mathematical and thoughtful way mm-hmm. so that you're not spending too much money in a place where you know, you'd rather allocate it to marketing or growing the business. So it definitely is customized and unique to each business, depending on how much is it going to take an investment to build up manufacturing and vertically integrate? And what is a gross margin or cost savings going to be from that move? Or what's the benefit to consumers going to be or benefit to the to the business enterprise value? So it's sort of customized and different for every business, but something we've been really happy to take in-house. That's awesome. What's something that you wish you would have done differently looking back? What would you have changed? And don't say nothing, because then I wouldn't have learned where I'm at, blah, blah, blah. I mean, I hear that one all the time. But That's assuming funny. you'd land where you are today, like what would you have maybe yeah. done earlier or different? I would say there are a couple things I would have done differently. One, in starting the business, so we were first-time founders, didn't know very much about how one starts a business, how one attracts top talent to drive towards executing on on the company's vision. But I think one thing we could have 
done earlier is just hire folks around the business in the core areas we needed to scale up. And I think we probably could have scaled more quickly in those early years of, of 2019, primarily if we had brought some folks on earlier to really execute against marketing work streams and growing the business. So I think one thing we've now learned really well, and I think are doing a really great job on is just hiring amazing talent that can go and execute in those areas or those departments to, you know, really 10x the business or, or drive a ton of value for the company. So that was one thing that, you know, in those early years of 2018, 2019, probably could have moved a little faster on and now are constantly, you know, doing as a business. How big is your team now? The team is about 160 full-time folks across the country now. Wow. That's wild. Plus the 100 at Awesome CX. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Plus plus wow. a bunch of folks in CX too. Yeah. I don't know the exact number they're currently, right? Because they're flexible. It's always going up yeah. and down. But yeah, it's a sizable team for sure. That's wild. And so what's something that you've, you know, I'm sure you've evolved so much as a leader, having to manage or, you know, build this huge team. What are some of the biggest lessons you've learned about building a team and your leadership style and how it's evolved? Great question, Leigh. I would say one of the major things I've learned about being the CEO of a company and being a founder is that the job is always changing. Mm -hmm. The job of co-CEO now is not the same as it was when we were first starting the business. When you're first starting the business, you're sort of a jack of all trades. You're wearing a lot of different hats. You're more of a functional IC individual contributor player as much as you are managing a leadership team or managing people and motivating them. But as the company scales, your job and our job as as leaders and founders has evolved to be more about looking farther forward, thinking about where pairs should be in the next three to five years and how we should be thinking about investments we make now, keeping us on the trajectory we want to be on. And the bulk of our role now as leaders is really being the best people managers we can be, right? Our job is leading our leadership team to lead their teams and motivate people across the company to do the best work that they can and make sure that we as founders are ensuring that our mission and vision is staying clear and consistent and we're always driving towards that and that we're building a long-lasting culture within the team to then go execute against that mission and vision. Because ultimately, one of the biggest learnings we've had is that it's the people around us and the team that really make the company win and make the company drive towards their vision. And so now a lot of our role is thinking about how we grow that team, build a long-lasting, sustainable culture of driving positive impact through the business over the long term. That's great. And so before we wrap up, what's some final advice that you have for aspiring entrepreneurs tuning in or those that are in the trenches right now trying to build their brand? I would say one of the biggest things I would say to sort of aspiring entrepreneurs, one is just get out and start. I think that is the biggest roadblock that a lot of people find is, you know, what company should I work on? What's the idea? Is now the right time? And just getting over that hump, obviously doing your diligence to think about those questions thoughtfully is important. But then once you feel like you've got a decent bit of conviction there to just dive right in, because I think I feel fortunate that we dove right in right after college. And while we did have to learn a ton along the way, I think 
the only way to sort of really learn what it's like to be a founder is to just dive in and do it. And then you will, you will learn along the way. And then I would say the other piece that is really important as a founder is to find mentors around you. And it's one thing we did early on, find mentors that have done what you're looking to do and are multiple stages ahead of you and really soak everything in from them. Try to learn as much as you can about what hardships did they face? What failures or mistakes can you avoid based off of their experiences? And so we found some really fantastic mentors that were in the consumer brand space, were multiple stages ahead of us. And we continue to find those mentors, even now being a series C stage company, as we drive towards you know the next three to five years and think about how the branding company will grow even further. We're even finding mentors now that are at stages well above us and beyond us. So I think that's probably the biggest piece of advice that I would give to founders is find mentors that can help you along the way. And then lastly, maybe final uh, piece of advice I would say is that starting a company is absolutely a marathon, not a sprint. And so think, you know, really thoughtfully about the business you want to get into and that you're excited about, and then really take care of yourself along the way. You need to make sure that you're at your best to be able to be the best leader that you can be. And that takes sometimes like taking a day off or investing in yourself to make sure that you come back super re-energized. So I would say, just be really thoughtful about that and stay persistent. All wonderful advice. Thank you so much, Nathan, for joining me on the show today and, and sharing your inspiring story and building pair eyewear. Thank you, Lee. Really appreciate you having me on. It was great chatting with you about all of the above. Thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review, and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing. <laughs>